1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today we're joined by Dr. John G. Turner, author of the new book, They Knew They Were Pilgrims, Plymouth Colony and the Contest for American Liberty, just published in 2020 by Yale University Press. Thanks so much, John, for joining us.
0: Pleased to be with you, Ryan.
1: Well, John, I'm really excited to get into this book with you, but before we dive in, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Sure. Well, I live just outside the Beltway in northern Virginia, and I teach at George Mason University. I've been there for about eight years. I have appointments in the departments of religious studies and history. Uh, I have a Ph.D. from the University of Notre Dame. I also have a Master's of Divinity uh, from Louisville Presbyterian uh, Theological Seminary. I love teaching, researching, writing, and talking about uh, the role of religion in the history of American culture and politics. Uh, first book I wrote was about uh, American evangelicalism, specifically Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, I've also written some things on the Latter-day Saints, and... You can you can tell that I have I have lots of interests. Um, you know, the history of American religion is just so full of fascinating stories. I'm not gonna not gonna live long enough to get to all of them that I want to learn about.
1: Well, John, you wrote your book, They Knew They Were Pilgrims, just in time for the 400th anniversary of the, of the Mayflower Landing. Of course, this is a subject that's been written about so much. I, I would be curious to hear from you, what were some of your, your unique approaches, some of the things that you were trying to do um, to contribute to this, uh, to this study of the Plymouth separatists?
0: Well, Ryan, I think in part because Americans have placed so much weight on the story of the Mayflower and turned it into a national origins myth. Hmm. Uh, and many Americans still associate the eventual you know, founding of their country. They, they root it in the landing on Plymouth Rock. Precisely because of that, it's, it's important uh, for h- historians to go back, to freshly examine it, and to get that story r- as right as possible. And to look at it from from new angles, so you know that that was part of my motivation. Um, I did hope that you know because it was the 400th of the Mayflower crossing and the Mayflower Compact and the landing at Plymouth. I hope that would maybe induce more people to read the book. Yeah. Um, but also, also for me, the you know as I got into the research, one thing that really struck me is that you know Americans you know, they often have a smattering of knowledge about uh, the Mayflower and the first Thanksgiving. And historians who write about uh, the settlement and colonization of New England, uh, they always discuss those early Plymouth events. And uh, then uh, Plymouth colony pretty much disappears from the story once the Massachusetts Bay colonists uh, show up uh, starting in 1628, and because Massachusetts Bay was larger, uh, had more economic and military clout, um, that colony tends to really dominate um, the the story of early New England. And Plymouth only reappears uh, around 1675 uh, with King Philip's War, which began in Plymouth and then en- engulfed uh, all of New England. And there was, you know, I found there's a there's a really fascinating half century of history. Um, you know, between the First Thanksgiving and King Philip's War and some remarkable stories about uh, New England settlements and uh, New England natives that have gotten a lot less attention but are also very um, gritty, colorful, and illuminating um, parts of uh, early New England history.
1: You've talked a little bit about this, this group that came on the Mayflower as, as distinct from the Massachusetts Bay Colony. So are these the Puritans? Are they somehow distinct from the Puritans? And so who who were these pilgrims and, um, and the, the, the separatists, as you, as you refer to them in your book?
0: Sure, that's a great question. You know, sometimes people draw a sharp distinction between pilgrims and Puritans. Other people more or less uh, lump them together. Uh, This is how I think about it. So, the Puritans were English Protestants who wanted to further purify uh, the Church of England. The term Puritan was really a a derogatory term that their opponents used for them, um, suggesting they wanted, they were too focused on creating a pure church. Um, And Puritans had all sorts of complaints about the Church of England. Um, You know, they didn't think many. Elements of ceremony and worship were biblical. Uh, they didn't like everything from the sign of the cross uh, at baptism uh, to uh, the priestly garments that um, Church of England ministers wore that that resembled um, Catholic priestly garments a little bit too much. Um, so they had all sorts of complaints. Most uh, Puritans... Uh, didn't break from the Church of England. They they hoped to purify it from within. Uh, one, uh, the more radical, the most radical of the Puritans, uh, decided that they were obliged to immediately separate uh, from it and form their own covenanted uh, congregations. Uh, those were the separatists who eventually comprised the majority of passengers uh, on the Mayflower. Uh, there were some other uh, folks um, who uh, joined the venture as well, who, who bought into it. Um, probably about a third of the passengers were not, um, of, of the adult passengers, were not uh, separatists. So it was a bit of a, a motley crew. Uh, but uh, at its core, uh, the Mayflower Crossing intended to transplant um, a congregation uh, to the new world. A lot of the separatists, um, when they were persecuted or feared being persecuted, had left England uh, in the first decade of the 1600s and had taken refuge in the Netherlands. Uh, In particular, um, under the leadership of a minister named John Robinson in the Dutch city of Leiden. And it was from there um, that um, the Mayflower Venture began. Uh, For a variety of reasons, Um, a portion of the congregation didn't want to stay in the Netherlands any longer. They wanted somewhere they could prosper a little bit uh, more, where their children would grow up speaking English rather than Dutch. And they decided to start a colony. And that's, that's how we get to the story of the Mayflower and Plymouth.
1: So John once these pilgrims arrive they they didn't arrive in a place that had been entirely is it wasn't unsettled and they weren't the first people to come from the old world to this new world. So could you tell us a little bit about the the early encounter with the the indigenous populations and what was their relationship with with the native americans like and and how was that maybe different from some of the other european settlers um, that that had already made their way over
0: well that's a i mean that's almost in many ways that's the question that i think animates a lot of discussion and debate about plymouth colony and other settlements uh today and for good for good reason um it's 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 not a it's not a simple uh question to answer i think the the first thing that uh people should know is that um you Mayflower arrived uh, in the wake of a terrible and devastating uh, epidemic that had afflicted the native communities of what's now Southeastern uh, Massachusetts. Um, Peoples that are um, generally called Nossets on the Cape, Wampanoags, to the, on the island south of the Cape and in much of southeastern Massachusetts, Poconokets, uh further to the west. Um, these communities had just been devastated uh, by this epidemic uh, over the previous several years. Some places were almost entirely wiped out, including uh, Patuxet, uh, which was the native name for what became uh, the town of Plymouth. So when the, when the pilgrims came ashore, uh, they saw a lot of evidence of uh, native societies. They saw um, cornfields. They saw a lot of graves. They saw houses. Um, they didn't see a lot of people at first because, um, and they first explored um, Cape Cod. The natives on the Cape, the Nossets, they were very wary of uh, these newcomers. And that wasn't first and foremost because of the epidemic. Um, It was because they'd had some other mixed encounters uh, with Europeans. Uh, Particularly over the last 20 years, uh, English fishermen, traders, explorers had been uh, coming uh, to uh, the New England coast. Um, And some of those encounters uh, went well. Uh, There was trading, uh, there were some. Occasional, you know, you know, eating together and and sort of checking each other out, but some of those encounters had um, turned violent. Uh, in particular, an English ship captain about six years before the Mayflower had kidnapped um, more than twenty uh, Native uh, men and women from Patuxet and from the Cape, and had taken them to spain and sold them as slaves Uh, one of those kidnapped men and um, would-be slaves was a man named tisquantum or squanto who really uh, remarkably um, made it back uh, to his homeland uh, found it wiped out by this epidemic and then was among uh, those Um, natives who had some facility with English who played a pivotal role in the early uh, Plymouth uh, settlement. So that's a long way of saying that when the pilgrims show up, there's a lot of pre-existing mistrust and suspicion. So you would think that the Wampanoags would simply want to wipe out uh, this new threat, but uh, their numbers had been devastated by the epidemic. Some of their uh traditional enemies had been largely spared to this point, and so uh the Poconokit um leader, usimiquin um pilgrims called him Massasoit, which means uh great great leader you know he sized up the situation and decided that the English um would be valuable allies and and he was right it really bolstered um his leadership and um, the ability of Wampanoag and Poconocet communities to defend themselves. Um, And so he and pilgrim leaders uh, form an alliance and a mutual uh, defense treaty. That roughly holds for about half a century. You know, at first, it's a situation or it's an agreement that really benefits both sides over the long run it really works to the benefit of the english and as the english population grows um, especially after the first 10 years of the colony uh, the english really overwhelm uh, native communities they you know they press in against them they coerce native leaders to sell land and when the when these communities finally uh resist uh the result is a bloody war which is very costly uh for the english king philip's war it's usually called uh but it's ultimately devastating for um those native communities who who fight the english uh so it's it's a long story uh, you know i don't think um it's necessary to depict the pilgrims as you know, bloodthirsty, uh, invaders, you know, they were, they were sort of religious refugees looking for, um, you know, somewhere they could, you know, transplant themselves. Um, and, you know, both peoples are really looking to their own, uh, self-interest and self-preservation. Uh, over time, this, this, this is just a devastating chain of events for native communities. Hmm.
1: John, so you've mentioned that these were religious refugees, and one of the strengths of your book, I think, is that you you really give us some some helpful insight into the religious nature of this of this group of of settlers. There's a fascinating observation, a little anecdote that you you draw out, how uh this group had been without their minister, who remained in the Netherlands, John Robinson, for a long time and were led by their uh, lay elder William Brewster, but as a result, they they hadn't even they hadn't taken the sacraments for for quite a long time, and and then when another Puritan minister John Lyford makes his way over to the colony, they seem to prefer to to continue to go without the sacraments, which meant so much to them, rather than to uh, compromise some of their of their separatist convictions. So, can you tell us a little bit about about some of that? That dynamic and and what that tells us about their their religious uh, culture, and then a little bit about how then this group of uh, religious refugees interacted with other dissenting religious groups that that they encountered.
0: Sure. Well, it's a great question, and you're right. I mean, Plymouth Colony is in many ways a testimony to the significance of lay leadership. Uh, among Separatists, maybe among Puritans uh, more generally, the mini- their minister, John Robinson, stayed behind in the Dutch Republic because a majority of the congregation uh, stayed there. And so it made sense for him to remain behind as well. And so Plymouth Colony didn't have a minister for uh, its first 10 years. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, their uh, elder, William Brewster, uh, preached most regularly. But we also know that that other individuals, other lay people, laymen, also uh, preached. Um, uh, Robert Cushman, uh, for instance, um, comes uh, to the colony briefly in 1621. Uh, preaches a sermon. It's published back in England. Um, and he was a grocer and a woolcomber in uh, then in Leiden, a grocer in England, a woolcomber in Leiden, and other Puritans you know they mock Plymouth Colony for having these ordinary unlettered, unordained uh, people um, you know be their uh, sermonizers you know it's a, It's considered something of a scandal, mm-hmm. but the separatists um, have a tradition of um, defending the right of laymen and sometimes lay women to interpret and teach from the Bible with authority, uh, they called it prophesying, which for them didn't mean making predictions about the future, but you know, so that authoritative teaching and interpretation of Scripture, which they would often do in. Um, an afternoon meeting uh, subsequent to, to Sunday morning uh, worship. But lay leadership did have some drawbacks. Uh, John Robinson clarified for the Plymouth colonists that Brewster uh, was not able to baptize children uh, or to preside over uh, the Lord's Supper. And so the colonists simply didn't have those things uh, for the first nine years or so um, of wow. the colony, and on the one hand it wasn't it wasn 't really a grave theological problem because they didn 't believe that children needed to be baptized um, or individuals needed to be baptized uh, in order to attain salvation, and they didn't uh, see the lord's Supper as an essential as essential to human salvation either but it didn't mean that those things were unimportant to them and it was at the at the very least a glaring and awkward um absence uh from the colony's religious life you had children uh who were born on the ship uh or during the first several years of the colony they were unbaptized and parents weren't happy about it mm-hmm. and um you're, you, you mentioned uh, John Lyford, who's a Puritan minister, that the financial backers of the colony send over in 1625. And the pilgrim leaders, they sort of size him up, you know, or, you know, can you go along with our principles? And, you know, he sounds sort of repentant about uh, having been uh, mixed up in the, in the Church of England and in its corrupt ceremonies. But when, it, when the rubber hits the road, he won't disavow his ordination in the Church of England. And so that sort of courtship between uh, congregation and prospective minister uh, breaks down, and the re- relationship becomes really bitter. Uh, the pilgrims uh, kick him out of the colony, uh, becomes a big, big hubbub on both sides of the Atlantic. And they have a hard time getting um, a minister to their liking. Um, William Brewster really remains their their foremost uh, religious leader for their first uh, couple of decades. Um, you also asked how, in general, they got along uh, with other sorts of dissenters. And the Leiford episode suggests not, not that well. <laughs> uh, on the one hand, the Pilgrims did sincerely believe that individuals should have a certain amount of liberty of conscience. They weren't going to force people to join their church. They wouldn't have wanted them all. Uh, you know, didn't think they were all fit to be church members. They didn't force anybody to have their children baptized or to partake of the Lord's uh, supper, as was the case um, in the church of England that they, they had uh, left behind. Um, and, for the most part, they don't enforce uh, church attendance. there's some back and forth on that. Hmm. but if people want to show up and more or less do their own thing as as long as they um, don't make a public stand against the separatist uh, or congregational church, you know th- they can sort of remain aloof from it, but they don't think that people should be able to form competing churches or other religious options. And that really becomes a point of controversy when the Society of Friends or Quakers uh, show up yeah. in New England starting in 1656. These are folks who are not content uh, just to quietly you know go about their their business. Um, instead, they publicly uh, denounce the colony's political and religious leaders, and for that, they are fiercely persecuted. Uh, that's it, it's most infamous in Massachusetts, where several Quakers are executed. It doesn't come to that in Plymouth, uh, but they do imprison, fine, whip, and banish Quakers. Then, after a couple of years, conclude it's just impossible to stamp out the Quakers through those harsh methods. And over the last several decades of the colony, the, the Quakers and Baptists um, are able to carve out a large measure of uh, religious liberty and toleration in Plymouth Colony.
1: So, John, I'm curious how, how, up until this point throughout this story that you've been telling, Plymouth is, is an autonomous, self-ruling colony. But as we get through the, the King Philip's War period and, and into the restoration of the monarchy, um, this doesn't last. So could you talk a little bit about what caused the, the eventual merging of, of Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay and that ends this, this unique chapter of separatist self-rule?
0: Sure, it's a good question. Well, first of all, I think it's useful to think of Plymouth Colony as sort of a middle ground uh, between mm. Rhode Island and Massachusetts Bay. And, you know, those are two very starkly opposing uh, religious and political visions. Uh, Roger Williams, who briefly um, is uh, a preacher uh, in Plymouth Colony, he, he is most during his early years in New England, he's mostly in Salem, Massachusetts, and they kick him out and he eventually becomes um, the founder of Rhode Island. And Williams comes to believe in soul liberty, uh, that uh, civil government should in no way intrude on the liberty of the human soul. And so there really is a strict separation of um, church and uh, state in Rhode Island, and it becomes a haven for Um, dissenters of many sorts uh, over time, different sorts of Puritans, uh, Quakers, Baptists, um, and so forth. Massachusetts Bay ends up with a a pretty strict uh, congregational uh, establishment and a substantial amount of cooperation among those congregations and with um, the colonies, political government. Plymouth Colony is sort of in between. Uh, there's not as uh, as strong of an establishment. Uh, there is an established congregational church uh, in each town. Um, you know, there's not as much um, outright you know cooperation among those congregations or between them and um, the the colonies' political leaders. Um, as your question suggested, that's that's quite right. Uh, plymouth colony uh is self governing uh from sixteen uh twenty uh through sixteen uh ninety one and basically on the foundation established uh by the mayflower uh compact and you know that 's no small accomplishment by the standards of the seventeenth century uh to set up a political order that persists uh for seven uh decades you know i think that's 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 an impressive uh legacy in the end Plymouth Colony is pretty small uh compared to uh, Massachusetts Bay uh in particular um, It doesn't have a royal charter uh which the Bay Colony had and which Rhode Island and Connecticut uh, both obtain now a charter is no guarantee because what the king can grant the king or another king can take away. And that happens to Massachusetts Bay um, in the 1680s. You know, there's general thoughts um, on the other side of the Atlantic that perhaps it would be better to consolidate uh, some of the New England colonies and place them under uh, royal appointed uh, governors. Uh, There's a lot of twists and turns to the story, but eventually... Uh, Plymouth Colony is attached to a larger province of Massachusetts Bay. And Plymouth's leaders, some of them were very simpatico uh, with uh, the Bay Colony's religious establishment and were probably okay with that. Uh, There were a lot of uh, Quakers and Baptists, particularly in the western portion of the colony, who very much lamented being attached to the Bay Colony uh, because for them it meant a decided loss of religious toleration and mm. and liberty. Uh, they would have been preferred. They would have preferred to have been attached to another colony, such as such as New York. So Plymouth Colony uh, disappears uh, as a self governing entity um, in the early sixteen nineties.
1: Fascinating. Well, John, thank you so much for the, your, the generosity of your time to talk with us about They Knew They Were Pilgrims. It's a great read. I hope our listeners pick it up and and enjoy it as much as I did. Before we let you go, could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on next?
0: Sure, Ryan. Well, thanks again for having me. It's fun to, fun to chat with you. Great questions. Um, my next project is a biography of the Latter-day Saint or Mormon uh, prophet uh, Joseph Smith, So I'll be working
1: on that for the the next few years. Excellent. Looking forward to watching how that project develops. Well, um, once again, we've been talking with Dr. John G. Turner, author of They Knew They Were Pilgrims, Plymouth Colony and the Contest for American Liberty, available now from Yale University Press. Thanks so much for joining us, John. Thanks, Ryan. And thank you for listening to New Books in Christian Studies. To find out more about our podcast, go to our website at newbooksnetwork.com. And of course, if you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to rate and like and subscribe and, and share the word with your friends. That's it for now. I hope you have a great day.